What an episode we have on the podcast today. We are joined by Ian McClure, the director of UK's Office of Technology Commercialization. He is doing amazing things for startups in Lexington, at UK, across the South, across the Midwest. This is a cannot miss episode. You're going to love it. Let's do it. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. My name is Nate Antetomaso up in Chicago. And Evan, you're actually on UK's campus right now, right? Yeah, we're in the Aztec building. The Aztec building. That is like the main stretch where they're doing all the construction right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of construction going on around here right now on campus. It's like they finished one project and then they just announced the new section that they're just going to completely tear up. Well, they got, a, what was it, $2 billion worth of stuff coming on campus, which is pretty cool, but it means a lot of construction. Yeah. And in the long run, it's always good. I remember freshman year, I lived in the the first dorm central, like the first new one. It's now yeah. called Johnson Hall, I believe. Uh, and there's just construction everywhere and it made life miserable, but now it's like the nicest part of campus. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, do you kind of want to just talk about um, why you're there and then we'll just jump into it? Yeah. So, I don't remember on, on a past episode, uh, we had uh, interviewed uh, Tom Martin from EKU, a good friend of mine. He just, he just kept telling me, hey, you got to meet, you got to meet Ian, you got to meet Ian McClure, uh, great guy. You know, he's doing a lot of stuff on campus, doing a lot of stuff in Lexington, uh, helping grow the technology community. He just kept saying that. So eventually I reached out uh, to Tom and said, hey, you need to connect me to this guy. Uh, and so he did. <laughs> he connected me to Ian. Uh, so here we are today in the Aztec building. He works in the Office of Technology commercialization here at UK. Uh, we can go into what that means, but thanks for joining us, Ian. Yeah, sure. Happy to be here. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We're super excited about talking about everything that you're doing. Yeah. I, well, I'm looking forward to getting into all of it. And, you know, Tom, I'm glad Tom has connected us. Tom's a great guy. Um, and, and so far, one of my favorite people to work with since moving back to Kentucky. Yeah. So the whole point of the podcast is to you know, highlight technology in Kentucky in this area and you know now Nate's up in Chicago so it includes that area um, and we're trying to you know meet people just like you uh, and Tom to highlight those things and what you go what you guys are working on uh, but let's talk about you know where you started did you grow up in Louisville I did I grew up in Louisville Kentucky uh, went to DuPont Manual High School and uh, and and still uh, love my roots um, and in fact I live just outside of Louisville and I commute to Lexington every day um, oh wow! And the chance that uh, to, that we got to move back to Louisville two years ago from Chicago uh, was a fortuitous one. It was um, uh, something that uh, we thought might happen uh, at some point, uh, and so far the trip back has been fantastic for for both me and my family. That's awesome. So you went to Dupont Manual, uh, then you went to college. Uh, can you talk about your route in college? Kind of what you went to college for? Do you have any idea? Uh, and then what you studied? Yeah, sure. So. Um, I actually started my uh, undergraduate career at Washington and Lee University, a small school in Virginia. Uh, I went there to play basketball and uh, spent two years uh, there in the Blue Ridge Mountains and decided that I really missed the city uh, and being a part of a, um, uh, an energetic vibe. Uh, so I transferred to Vanderbilt, <coughs> uh, completed my undergraduate studies there. I did uh, studied uh, economics 
uh, as an undergrad there. Um, although uh, I knew that I was going to go to law school, I had my sights set on law school, and in fact was 99.8% sure that I was going to be an entertainment attorney. Uh, really uh, wanted to do copyright law, had studied copyright law, uh, read books about it, um, actually worked for music, uh, Sony Music Publishing and uh, Warner Brothers Music uh, when I was in Nashville. Uh, and then cool. so set out to go to law school on the West Coast. Uh, I went to Chapman University School of Law, County, California. Um, they had an entertainment law program. Uh, they had a, they have a large music, or not a music, a movie production facility uh, on campus there. They have a, a strong major in uh, movie production. Uh, so I thought that was going to be uh, my path. Uh, the other side of intellectual property law uh, that, I, that I really currently practice now. <laughs> uh, so you went from Kentucky uh, and then you went to uh, L.A. Mm-hmm. How was how was that transition? Yeah, because yeah. I went through that as well. <laughs> uh, different place. Uh, I certainly I, I love Southern California as well. My mother's family is actually from Pasadena, L.A. area. Um, uh, but I learned a lot actually being out there. Um, uh, when I was um, after my first year in law school, I uh, participated in California Lawyers for the Arts, uh, a nonprofit organization that provides um, pro bono. Uh, or discounted legal services uh, related to the arts, uh, entertainment law, uh, again, focused. Um, But had a great time out there. But just like many um, graduates of law school, um, uh, I wanted to go to a law firm to start my career. No entertainment law offers came my way. uh, But a corporate and uh, M&A, mergers and acquisitions, transactions law offer came my way from Wyatt Tarrant Combs back in Louisville. Uh, And so um, I packed up my bags I moved back to Louisville from law school uh, to start my career uh, in the corporate M&A realm, uh, having not much to do with intellectual property at that time. So how just long com- did you do Just completely by chance you got into that, just by what was available? Yeah. It, yeah, it was. Um, I had interviewed with, with Wyatt, um, and this was, the, this was the last year that law firms did really big summer associate classes. Um, mm-hmm. This was um, the year before the recession. Um, and what, and and especially in, in corporate M and A transaction law, um, law firms had to really cut down on the number of um, students that they were hiring out of law school, and um, uh, so I got I, I came back and did a summer associateship uh, at uh, White Tarrant and Combs, and they had a position open in their corporate M and A group and, and offered it to me. Um, I always knew that I was not going to be a litigation attorney. I knew that the courtroom is not really what I wanted to do, um, but. Uh, when this came open, you know, with uh, with student loan debt coming out of law school, I, I, I was willing to sort of take whatever I could get. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, makes sense. So, how long were you doing that until you know your next your next thing? Yeah, so I practiced law for two years. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, actually, uh, worked on some really interesting things with Wyatt. Um, yeah, they've got a lot of clients um, in in many sectors, especially in the in the corporate group. Uh, worked on some really interesting deals and M and A transactions. Um, sure. And then I had an opportunity, uh, well, so I'll back up. Um, I wrote an article, I published a law review article uh, because I was working on a deal um, that fell apart as a result of the two sides not being able to agree on the intellectual property at stake. Uh, it was an M&A transaction. The two sides uh, couldn't agree in the end on, on the value um, uh, that the uh, intangible assets uh, attributed to, uh, to the value of the uh, company to be acquired. Uh, and so that company fell apart, or that deal fell apart. And I thought there's got to be a better way to do this. How can we not have a, a sort of some price discovery or, or a market-based price for intangible assets? Uh, 
so I published an article about the need for a um, international marketplace for intellectual property rights, where we could create that price transparency, create um, um, a market price for intellectual property, and, um, uh, and 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 sort of fix this otherwise clandestine marketplace for IP. Um, I published that and I didn't think much of it, and I got a call from someone up in Chicago who said, um, "I'm going to start a company based on." The marketplace that you just described in your in your law review article. Do you want to fly up to Chicago and talk to me about it? And so I did. Flew up to Chicago, um, had a dinner, um, and decided to uh, leave my uh, corporate you know uh, partner of track position at uh, Wyatt Tarrant Combs. Uh, my wife was none too happy about this move at the time, <laughs> and um, uh, and go start a you know pre revenue pre funded company up in Chicago that was focused on a financial marketplace for intellectual property rights. And you got connected to that opportunity because you just wrote a blog post, basically, and you put that piece of content out and you established yourself as an, an like an expert in that, that specific topic. And that's how you yeah, got connected. That's crazy. That's, that's right. And it, it wasn't really well. I did actually write a blog post as well. Um, but I, I spent some time and wrote it. I published a 30 page law review article with some pretty okay. Uh, research supporting the need for this really because there's a at the time there was a pretty large gap in the in the just the law law review academic literature on the mm -hmm. need for something like this uh, but i also had a blog called ip perspective as well mm -hmm. and i wrote some pieces uh, on that um but yeah um somebody read my article forwarded it to um uh, to this gentleman that uh, was going to start this company uh, and ultimately we did yeah content production leading to opportunity it's good we talk about that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're doing. Just creating content. Well, it's interesting when you put yourself out as an expert in something. You know, um, anybody can become an expert in something if they study it up, put themselves out as an expert, and then get themselves engaged in whatever it is um, that's going on, especially if there's, a, if there's a gap in what it is that people understand uh, about that subject um, that you yourself can figure out and, um, and, if anything, propose a solution. Yeah. It's jump into it, learn, research, learn as you go, and make content while you're doing it. Makes That's sense. Right. Uh, so, can you go into more of the the product that you guys were aiming to build up there? And uh, you know, it's, IP law is not something that a lot of people understand. There's a lot of technicalities to it. Sure. Uh, so, if you can, you know, just describe it in a way that you know everybody can hopefully understand. Sure. Well, I, the the best way that I can describe it quickly is we're all familiar with um, uh, commodities markets where you can trade. Um, uh, futures or options contracts based on cereal, grain, oil. Um, uh, many of us that are day traders uh, or, or even are a part of some mutual funds um, may own some tradable stocks um, uh, and or commodities. But essentially, um, technology rights or, or rights to intellectual property is a one-off um, uh, clandestine transaction marketplace uh, without any standard course of dealing or um, uh, or actual market in which these trades can take place. Uh, so every single intellectual property license, every every single intellectual property asset transfer is negotiated on a one-off basis. So there is no um, uh, market uh, uh, with uh, trades that are regulated by some standard course of dealing or rules, set of rules. Um, so what we decided is um, the same way you can trade those commodities, why couldn't we create a futures contract uh, or other tradable contract for the rights to the future value of technology. So if you wanted to um, 
uh, if you really like, and I'll just use a, a technology that everyone, everyone is familiar with, if you really like iPhone technology, but you do not like Apple stock, right? You have some issue with their management or just simply don't want to trade in the equities um, of, of Apple stock. Um, you can uh, you could trade in the future value of the iPhone based on its its underlying intellectual property rights, uh, and that's essentially what we did. Uh, we would package intellectual property rights to future technology, uh, and then we would offer it up the same way that you do an IPO for a company um, uh, with a public offering of rights to that technology in a marketplace. Um, now that technology might not be actually used in products for ten years, but that's the whole point. Uh, is that you can bet on the future value of the technology, thereby financing the, the current uh, and ongoing development of that technology um, because um, uh, some of the price that you would pay would go back to the owner of those rights so they could continue to develop it. Uh, and that's what we did. We traded. We, we spent a lot of money on a tradable platform, an online um, tradable platform, uh, and then we created these commoditized contracts that could be traded through this exchange. So my question is, how did you set the price of these intellectual properties? Did you have people research? Because in the beginning, I'm sure this, the prices were set by humans, but eventually the vision was the market would eventually you know, determine a price of, of IP somehow, yeah. right? So how in the beginning were you, were you setting these prices? That's right, it was, it was, so it was pure market theory, right? So in, in, any, in any perfect marketplace, in a perfect market, um, uh, you know, an asset is worth what a willing buyer will pay for it. Um, but ultimately, to do an IPO right, you have to be the investment bank and actually come up with these, the first offering yeah. price, right? This is how IPOs work. Um, the investment bankers do a lot of research. They come out with a core underlying range, um, and then the market will set the price within that range based on what a willing buyer is willing to pay. Uh, and so that's what we did. We actually hired, um, we hired about 20 um, just out of MBA grad type students. Uh, or, or uh, professionals uh, that uh, became our research analyst base. Uh, they did a lot of research on the underlying rights, the future um, potential of the market, the growth potential of that market, um, how many companies would be in that market in five, 10 years. Uh, we packaged all of that research up the same way you would in an IPO offering to investors, um, you know, in a, um, in a private placement document or something like that. Um, and we would talk about why a range of value made sense and then we basically said, now it's up to you to pick a value within that range and put a put a bid in, right? Um, no different than an IPO, the way that an IPO was priced. Yeah. Do you remember what was the first technology that you were working with to create this this value in this? Yeah, it was um, <laughs> thinking that the, the first technology we got to do this with was a really neat technology. It was uh, organic light organic light emitting diode or OLED technology, oh, yeah. which now we all yeah. know is sort of um, display screen technologies. It's very cool. My own televisions uh, or um, uh, or uh, mobile phones that have uh, OLED display screen um, technology. Uh, so we had a very large uh, portfolio of OLED technology held by Philips, uh, uh, which is now mostly a healthcare company, but Philips Electronics is a well-known company based in the Netherlands that has done a lot in lifestyle and entertainment um, technologies, and they had worked on OLED technologies for 20, 30 years yeah. um, and had some of the foundational technology in OLED um, uh, because they have also been a very um, prominent company in the LED lighting space. Uh, what well, OLED and LED, of course, are um, uh, just next generation technologies from each other. Uh, so um, it was really neat. We got, uh, you know, we got to learn a lot about that market, uh, priced that offering and launched it through the exchange. Very cool. So how long did this 
Uh, it was Inter Intellectual Property Exchange International was the, mm -hmm. was the name of this. That's right. Um, how long did that last? Yeah, so um, uh, we were successful in, in some cases uh, because we raised a pretty significant amount of money. We had a team of uh, about 35 people. Uh, we had offices in Chicago and Charlotte and Tokyo uh, and had really an international business. Um, uh, we had a number of companies and universities and national laboratories that had technologies that they um, uh, put on the exchange. Um, uh, and ultimately, one of, uh, one of the problems uh, that we had was we launched this company at the end of 2011. Uh, and then uh, the America Invents Act, uh, which was a, a, a federal um, patent reform act that was uh, that came into uh, uh, fruition in January 2012, uh, and it changed a lot of the ways that patents were enforced uh, and became enforceable, um, and ultimately did did its part to weaken the patent system here in the U.S. Unfortunately, um, uh, that became uh, tough for us, uh, and in fact, that five year period, five and a half year period that we ran this company. Um, was probably um, one of the toughest periods in U.S. history to actually license patents, uh, and that was uh, that was problematic for us. So we ran the business for about five and a half years, um, uh, made some money, um, uh, but really not enough for the scalability that we needed, uh, and ultimately um, uh, sold some of the assets back and wound down the company uh, when we realized that it was going to be too tough in that current environment. Uh, to actually do this, we, ultimately, I think we were just too too early for something like this. The, yeah. I think the technology market, the investment market, was not ready for this type of a product. So, do you see this type of product popping up again? Is is does it has it popped up? Mm -hmm. uh, what do you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I am I am one hundred and ten percent confident that that business model is going to pop up again. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm already aware of a resurgence of the same business model um, coming back. Um, uh, I've been asked to be an advisor for a very similar company that's going to come back out uh, with almost an identical business model. Uh, and the environment has changed a bit, so uh, I'm hopeful that it, can, that it can succeed the second time around. Yeah. Cool. Well, you can say you trailblazed that space <laughs> when, it becomes a, that's right. when it becomes a thing. Yeah. Awesome. So now you're UK. Uh, what was your journey from winding that down to arriving here? Yeah. So when we wound that down, uh, I went to an investment bank called Blackstone IP. It was a boutique investment bank. We had about 30 or so employees. Um, and we were focused on what we called IP rich M&A. Um, we had a niche practice uh, where we um, had clients that were Fortune 100, Fortune 500 tech companies um, that were looking to source deals um, that were not based on cash flow um, or even business model. They were based solely on the technology or IP rights that were owned. Um, uh, by these other companies. Uh, and so uh, we played our part to source valuable technology that was steeped in um, uh, uh, protectable inventions and intellectual property. Uh, we did a lot of intellectual property research uh, and basically became a, a transaction advisor to these clients uh, on these types of acquisitions that were sort of just technology gap filling measures for these larger companies where they knew they were, they were going to be somewhere in 5, 10, 15 years and they trusted in us um, that knowledge, that information that, hey, we're going to be here in 15 years, um, which is which is very sensitive information to have. Um, and it was our job to help them identify um, uh, uh, roadblocks in the patent landscape for them to get there uh, and help advise them on the best path to get to that place 
whether that be through organic IP portfolio development or acquisition of early stage companies uh, or just patent portfolios owned by other entities uh, that would help them get the freedom to operate so they can actually get there. Yeah, that would be, to me, that would be so awesome. Constantly researching, knowing what's coming and working with these companies Yeah, uh, and having that information. That's, that just seems like a dream you know, to it me was, at least, in my mind, it was really, yeah. really neat. We were at the bleeding edge of where we knew companies, big companies, were going to be, um, and a lot of it was based on patent positioning, right? If you want to know where a company is going to be in 15 years, you're not going to know by the products they sell today, or even the things that they're marketing today, right? Um, you're going to find out first in their patent filings, right? Um, because what a company is investing in R&D-wise today is where they're going to be 10, 15 years from now. Um, but unfortunately, there are some issues in um, patent filings where certain patent filings are not public for a couple of years. Um, and so there's a, this this sort of black hole, right? Um, and um, as third-party transaction advisors, it was our job to figure out who was filing in that black hole period, where companies were going to be, so we could help our clients understand uh, what to do within that two-year um, black hole period. Uh, and they knew. And so it was our job to go find out who had filed what, where, um, and what were what type of assets could be could be acquired, um, uh, so they could be the first to get there. Got it. And you said so it was Blackstone in Chicago. So we were actually headquartered in San Francisco. San Francisco, that's um, good. That's what I was going to ask because if you're working with all these technology yeah. companies, I assume you had to be close yeah. or at least communicate with them constantly. Yeah, that's right. So we were based yeah. in San Francisco. Um, I ran a small team that was based in Chicago. Um, we did have um, East Coast and then a lot of a lot of actually international clients. Um, and so um, it was easier for me to get to New York City than, than the, the rest of our team based in San Francisco. Uh, we also had an office in Europe, um, but uh, an international business, um, did a lot of international travel, uh, but it was fun. Yeah, certainly um, uh, having that type of information and being able to do those sort of cutting edge deals was, was fun. Yeah, sounds like it. That's awesome. So went from Blackstone and then you came back to UK, to Kentucky from San Francisco yeah. and no, from Chicago. Uh, what was that? What was that like? Yeah, um, it was an interesting uh, opportunity that, that really came out of nowhere for me. Um, uh, the recruiter that UK had hired to fill this position was a recruiter that knew me from, uh, they had recruited me to a, a position um, prior to this and, and had remembered that I was from Kentucky um, and, uh, and reached out. And um, immediately I did some research. I looked into the University of Kentucky patent portfolio. I looked into benchmark technology commercialization offices at, um, uh, at similarly situated, similarly sized universities uh, and realized quickly that this was a greenfield opportunity. Um, what I realized is there was a lot of potential here um, at UK that was not being tapped. Um, and and I, I, I viewed it as not just a challenge, but one that I, re- I really thought that could be improved upon um, and fairly quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and also saw it as an opportunity to come home. Yeah. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I was doing a lot of international travel. I've got two little kids, uh, three and five. And so the ability to come home, uh, be closer to some family, but then also take everything that I had learned, uh, through my previous, uh, career stops, uh, and bring it back, uh, to benefit the state and UK. Yeah. Was, uh, was a part of that decision. That's awesome. Yeah. That's what Tom was telling me. He's like, you know, Kentucky as a whole is lucky to have this guy, and his talent that he brings uh, to UK and Kentucky. Uh, so tell us what the Office of Technology Commercialization does, which is which is where you uh, where you work. Yeah, sure. So we um, the easiest way to describe what we do is um, 
we manage the university's inventions. Um, and so the, um, all of the discoveries that are happening on a daily basis in our research laboratories, um, uh, across all of our faculty and staff um, throughout the campus, uh, those inventions get disclosed to our office and it's our job to assess them, evaluate them, determine if there's commercial viability in them, uh, protect them through patent filing or other intellectual property protection, uh, and then um, determine a strategy for commercializing those technologies. Um, and that path can be very different. That can be an entrepreneurship startup path. That can be a partnership with an established company path um, uh, and others. So it's, um, uh, it's our job really to not just to derive revenues, but to create value and to make sure that we're, we're moving those inventions to market uh, for, for consumer use, for public benefit, and for, for the benefit of the, of the Commonwealth. Got it. So why was it so greenfield? Why, why was it not built up as much as, you know, I'm not going to be, it's not fair to say a Stanford, right. but why was it so greenfield? Sure. Well, um, one is the office had been under-resourced for, for a number of years um, uh, relative to other sized universities that are the same size as, as UK. Um, and it was clear you could, you could look at, um, based on our average exp uh, research expenditures, we should have been um, counting at least double the number of inventions that we were counting uh, and, and tr even triple the number of licenses that we, we were counting. Um, and, uh, and so I realized quickly uh, that there was a lot, there was most likely a lot of really neat things going on. Because if you looked at the, the, the prolific researchers we have here at the university uh, in certain spaces like agriculture and pharmacy uh, and, and energy and engineering and, and others, um, we had top minds in those fields uh, that certainly were producing things that just weren't being captured by yeah. the university. Uh, and so uh, I knew that with some new process engineering, with some new resources uh, and talented people, uh, we could do some pretty neat things pretty quick. Makes sense. So when you got here, what were some of the immediate things you noticed that needed to be you know, built up? What were the first things that you did Yeah, you know, really to, to help it? Get to the next level. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, step one was um, mend relationships with uh, with all of our researchers uh, and faculty. Um, I think confidence in the office is a really is a really important thing. It's a critical component for a technology commercialization office to be successful because faculty don't really think in this way most of the time, right? They are oriented around publishing uh, research and publishing their results through academic literature. Uh, and they're not always sort of steeped in the commercial side of that research, right? Um, and so um, they have to have confidence in an office like ours that we are not only going to be sort of stewards of their inventions um, and and protect their confidentiality and, and allow them to still publish and, and operate as they would as faculty, um, uh, but, you know, confidence that um, uh, we're going to be easy to work with and things like that, right? Yeah. So um, the first thing I did was go out, I went on a roadshow. I just literally... We, we developed these, we call them uh, researcher roundtables with each college. Um, it was kind of like, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies. Um, but that's basically what I did. And, yeah. um, and met with faculty one-on-one -on -one and, and in small groups uh, and just asked them questions like, what, you know, what do you want from our office? And um, uh, what's been in the problem in the past? And, and what do we need to do to, uh, to make sure you have confidence in what we can do? Yeah. And, and as part of that, looking at the current research landscape here at UK and recruiting others outside of UK to come in and fill the different gaps of research not being done. Cause yeah. you know, UK, 
Uh, we're very well known for recruiting, you know, basketball players right. and football players. Is the same thing being done on the research side of because people don't think of that. Right. Is that being done? Yeah, um, it is actually. So one thing you get had done uh, very well. So um, uh, a number of years ago here in the state, we had a really neat program called Bucks for Brains, uh, and Bucks for Brains, uh, in addition to some other programs, uh, allowed the University of Kentucky to go after some really top talent in certain fields. Uh, and that was a mission for a few years here at the university. And we did. We amassed um, a group of faculty um, uh, that, that were top in their field in certain fields uh, that are still doing research here today. Um, and so that was, you know, we, we actually do a pretty good job of that. And we've got some really top faculty in certain fields here. Um, uh, and, uh, and really, that's so that was already in place. And I knew we needed an office that could take advantage of that. Um, and actually cultivate an environment where inventions were being brought forth and we were partnering with uh, with those faculty uh, uh, on commercialization opportunities. Got it. Very cool. So I'd like to read a few stats here on uh, that I found on UCAT, uh, and then I would like you to kind of compare that to some of the other you know, well-known colleges of our size and kind of in our field, and then also, if you can, to the Stanford's of the world, if, if you, you know, can help there. Uh, so in 2017, uh, there were 40 new patents filed, uh, and gross royalty from those was 2.4 million basically in 2017. Um, let's see with some of these others, uh, licenses and options as of June, uh, 30th, 2017, there are about 117 of those. And as far as income distributed to those inventors, uh, it's about 4 million in t- since 2010. And then income distributed to the colleges and departments since 2010 was about 13.4 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are some, some really interesting numbers. I, I had never come across those and never really thought of a university as making money off of right. you know inventions coming out of them. And same as you know founders coming out, creating this technology, and ultimately commercializing commercializing right. it, which is exactly what you do. So can you compare those numbers to you know some of the other? Uh, comparable sure. universities. So that 40 patents issued in 2017, <clears throat> that put us uh, at 62nd of all universities uh, in the in, in the country um, uh, for uh, for for patents received uh, in that year, um, which is pretty good um, if you look at sort of where we are research expenditures wise. Um, uh, that uh, uh, that's uh, that's decent uh, and where we should be. Um, Relative to someone like a, a Columbia or a Stanford, though, right? Um, so, for example, Columbia, I think um, they receive almost 400 inventions a year. Wow. Uh, wow. Year before I came, we did 50. Um, and this past year, we increased that to 100. Uh, so we doubled. Wow. Um, but so there's, you know, uh, tech transfer offices. So Columbia's got 35 or so people in their office. We've got, um, you know, just under 15. Um those are those are much larger um, uh, operations uh, that that have a whole lot more activity. I think the biggest difference, though, is not sort of just in those kind of numbers, but it's access to resources, talent, investors, uh, and everything that you need in a commercialization ecosystem uh, uh, to to sort of um, grease the wheels, right, uh, for all of it to happen. Um, the number of licenses we have, 117, we're going to see that grow. We've got a strategic plan uh, as part of uh, the UK research strategic plan to increase that um, uh, to almost 200 uh, by the time we get uh, at the end of 2020. Um, I think at the pace we're going right now, uh, we had we did about 30 licenses this past year. Uh, that was the most we had uh, ever done. 
uh, I think we can actually we can get there. Uh, so uh, for you know the way that the way we the way that we try to um, compare ourselves is really against um, not just like sized universities, but like um, uh, uh, universities with a similar research makeup. So universities with a college of medicine, a college of pharmacy, and a college of agriculture, and a college of engineering. Um, with uh, the same size of research expenditures. And we've got our benchmark institutions for that. Um, and that's who we try to compare ourselves against. Um, and prior to 2016, we were below average on a number of those um, uh, stats. We're now at benchmark or above benchmark um, in, a, in a number of those. So invention disclosures, we're at around where we should be. Um, number of licenses per year, we're actually ahead uh, of where uh, our benchmark average is um, uh, the, the revenues generated uh, is actually above benchmark average uh, for universities of our size. Um, and a lot of that is from, usually from, you know, a few big hits, right? Yeah. Uh, we've had our first sort of big hit uh, recently with a product that got to market. Uh, and so mosquito? Uh, uh, nope. Well, no. that's, that's our, that's one of our babies that, yeah. we, that we hope uh, we'll get to that point. Uh, yeah, that's, that's coming down in the future. Uh, but that's, you know, we know who those special things are and Mosquito Mate and others are so, right, sort of in right. our in our sort of treasure chest right now. Things yeah. we want to make sure get to a, a good place so they can actually uh, sell products in the market. That's awesome. So you mentioned that you went from, you doubled the amount of patents in how many years? One year? Yeah. The number of inventions. Inventions. Yeah. Inventions. So there has to be, you know, you came in and, and you, you had to change it one most of the time you see that big of a change, there's one thing normally, I know there's a lot of things I'm sure go into that number increasing, but usually there's one apparent thing that need to be changed mm -hmm. to have that big of an impact. What Was there one, just one thing or was it a bunch of things? Uh, I, well, I guess it was a bunch of things. I think the two most important of those bunch of things um, were um, uh, additional people, right? Okay. Uh, that could uh, be focused on relationship development with our faculty. Uh, visibility of the office uh, needs to be important and confidence in the brand of our office um, needs to be felt uh, by all of our faculty. So they want to disclose things to us. Mm -hmm. It's it's cultural. Right. Yeah. So and this is um, one of the things that Tom Martin and I are, mm -hmm. are working on across the state yeah. is that commercialization incentives. Um, it's a it's an environment that requires um, motivation to do it, to, to actually play. Right. Um, and that's a cultural thing. Uh, it requires education. It requires a policy that incentivizes that type of activity. As I mentioned, faculty are more focused on academic literature uh, and publication. Uh, so we have a policy where 40% of everything we make goes back to the inventors and their personal capacity, right, uh, to their personal pocket. Um, and so that, that, that type of a policy has to incentivize working together. Um, but then also just um, a, um, a good relationship with our office. And so that's, we hired, um, we, we doubled the size of our office. I immediately restructured our office and, and hired um, uh, five new full-time uh, staff. Uh, and then the re that restructuring with the new staff, um, we oriented ourselves not inwardly as an administrative office, but outwardly as um, a relationship and client service yeah. based office. So you're saying the inventions could have already been here. It's just that they weren't being communicated yes. to the office. Yep. And thus you guys couldn't help them out. That's right. Got it. Okay. That's, yep. Makes sense. Yeah. The year before I came, we had 54 disclosures. Uh, and then uh, this past year, our first full year with our new team, we had 101. 
Um, and that's a direct result of those two things, additional people to create those relationships and then a culture of the office that was focused on uh, more client service things. Makes sense. Very cool. So it's kind of transitioned a couple of things you're working on. Um, and, you know, I just want to say I can, you're an, you're a purebred entrepreneur. You're, you're, you've started companies in the past and, you know, you've been entrepreneur and you're, and now you're an entrepreneur again. Um, and you're, working on two really interesting things. When we had sat down for coffee, um, you had shared two really interesting projects that you're working on that, you know, to me just made so much sense. Uh, and to me, uh, the fact that it hasn't existed in the past or wasn't, uh, you know, grown to its full potential, um, you know, amazed me because uh, it just, once you hear the idea, uh, it clicks. So can you kind of go into what you're trying to build um, here at UK along with other universities? The, the first one I'm thinking of, uh, is that platform that connects, you know, that research to talent? Yep. Yeah. So talent is a big thing for us. It's one of the, it's one of my sort of personal focuses um, in, in improving our overall commercialization ecosystem. Um, and the reason is uh, we have, uh, so one of the main paths to get our technologies to market is through development of startups. That is an overall trend across the country in technology commercialization offices at universities. Um, the number of startups created by these offices has increased every year over the past decade. Um, and uh, and so as a result, more and more of our technology is moving in that direction. We've got about 65 startup companies right now that are out there in the world with UK technology. Uh, when we took an inventory of them um, the year that I came, uh, we realized that a majority of these were still being managed by faculty whose full-time job is as a faculty member. Yep. Right. So um, we immediately realized that um, this company is not getting 100 percent attention uh, by a, um, an executive or manager. Um, uh, but for the most part, these were um, sort of hobbies or just vehicles to get grants uh, and things like that to develop the technology only, but not focus on the business yeah. side of it. Uh, so um, the issue is our research scope here at the university is uh, larger than the immediately available talent pool here in Lexington. Um, we've got uh, a talent pool here with experience in the equine industry and in the bourbon industry um, uh, in real estate. Uh, we've got a lot of executives, people uh, leaving Lexmark that have spent um, their career there. Uh, but um, if we've got something coming out of um, our college of medicine, that's a medical device, we don't have a whole lot of that talent uh, around us. Um, but there may be what we realized there may be a lot more of that talent in the networks of other universities that are regionally affiliated with us. Um, so Cincinnati and Indianapolis and Louisville um, uh, and even South and Nashville and other um, ecosystems do have um, more of that talent. So what we did is I pitched to uh, all of the SEC universities um, in the Southeast. We meet once a year, all the directors of those offices. Um, and I challenged them and I said, you know, um, why don't we pool our networks? Uh, and develop a platform that can literally be almost like a recruiting tool where we can match experienced entrepreneurs uh, to uh, companies that, are, that have um, a technology that's acutely matched with that entrepreneur's background. And everyone agreed it's a great idea. Uh, and so um, we did this with two different groups of universities, a Southeast group and a Midwest group. There's 25 universities in all, and we called it the Executives on Roster platform. Uh, we built this platform over about a year, populated it with about 70 uh, entrepreneurs and just over 50 companies. Uh, and then we launched it uh, in early August. Uh, and it's already sh shown its um, its value proposition to us. We've got U University of Kentucky has eight startups in this platform, and we're already in talks with matching a couple of those. 
with, uh, with entrepreneurs that we've qualified and put into the system um, from those other university networks. Interesting. It, it just amazed me when I first heard that idea that so much money goes into the, these universities and goes into this research, but connecting that and making it become a company just wasn't being done in a way that was really effective. And it just, it clicks once you understand that, okay, there's this great research, it's becoming a great invention, but these people creating this research and this invention are not business-minded. Right. So you got to connect them to somebody that's business-minded or have done that in the past. It just makes so much sense. Um, so it's one of those ideas that, you know, needs to be done and it makes sense to, to build. And it's awesome that, yeah. you know, you're leading that here in, in the SEC at, at UK. Yep. Yeah. Such a big network. Talent is a critical aspect of success in startups. And um, there's nothing better than experience. Yeah. Right. So um, if we can find someone who has raised capital before, um, hired and fired, managed a team from zero to 10, those types of things, someone who has done those, those things before, even if they failed, right, they've done them and they've learned from those failures. Um, uh, and, uh, and that's the type of talent that we're looking for. Yeah. Got it. And so you mentioned investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're also working on another platform yep. that I, that I, you know, when I heard it, I loved it. Uh, can you go into what you're building as far as uh, how to describe it? It's like a, it's it's a scaled pitch is, is how I kind of think of it. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is a part of a grant that we received um, from the NIH NIGMS um, uh, for their uh, institutional development award states. Uh, and what it is, it's a, um, uh, it's a grant um, for three years, three and a half million dollars to build a, um, a biomedical technology accelerator hub. Um, and our idea is that, um, and we partnered again with about 24 universities across the Southeast um, uh, to get this grant. Um, and the idea is that we, we're going to build an online, um, an online hub that's interactive, that can do assessment, um, edu- entrepreneurship education, um, it can almost it, it can basically be an online accelerator for biomedical technologies in the southeast, uh, and um, and one of the components of this hub is access to um, not just talent but also capital, right? So one of the issues in the southeast and in the Midwest is that relative to the coasts, right, our access to talent and capital um, is uh, just relatively less, um, and. Uh, but it, you know, to, in a day and age where you can work remotely, you can access things remotely through um, interactive uh, media content. Um, uh, what we're going to do is build a hub that provides um, access to capital and investor pitches um, remotely. Um, so um, we would have a room where you could do deal pitches, investor pitches, um, invite people from the coasts or from the region um, to um, uh, to participate yeah. uh, in those. Um, and then uh, we would actually do team building using the same platform I just described for matching talent uh, to startups. Uh, and then so remotely using an online tool that's interactive um, and very dynamic, uh, we could actually create an online accelerator um, that breaks down this sort of flyover region barrier. Right. Yeah. So the, the pitch is only a small part of that. It's, it's a really an overall hub that. That's right. Great, you know, provides a lot of different tools. Yep. Yeah. Self-assessment. Uh, there's going to be curriculum uh, for entrepreneurs and inventors. Uh, they can uh, evaluate their stuff. They can learn uh, what steps to take, um, get feedback. Um, it's going to, the, the, the partner uh, uh, here is Accelerate Health. It's a Louisville-based healthcare accelerator. Awesome team. Uh, great experience uh, helping companies uh, move through an accelerator process. 
Uh, and um, and we'll be building this whole hub and the tools with yeah. that. So how do you connect this hub uh, to investors, to the VCs, to uh, the private equity firms that might be willing to you know, provide money? Are you going out and building those relationships and saying, hey, we have this tool? Or are you building the tool, putting it out there and letting them come? How? What's that? What's yeah, that like the tool has to um, the, the tool has to be useful. Yeah, um, but more more important than the tool will be the content that we get into the tool. Right. So those twenty four universities that are partnering with us on this, um, it's going to be up to them to self assess, uh, to identify valuable technologies, bring them into this hub so that they can access mm. the uh, the the capital and the talent and the curriculum and the the, the commercialization instruments um, in the hub, uh, but um, Ultimately, how you um, how you attract the, the talent and the capital investors to to the hub is, is marketing, right? Once you have content, the content should breed itself if yeah. it's actually good content. What we know is that there's amazing inventions coming out of the southeast and Midwest, but a lot of them meet these barriers uh, with no access to capital and talent um, uh, and other partnerships. And so, if we can build that, if we can break down that barrier and through an online hub like this, create that access then we're basically we're effectively creating a centralized pipeline of cool things that people on the coasts will want to see yeah almost like a another marketplace sure yes yeah. that's exactly back right. to this idea we're of, back to market theory yeah <laughs> yeah that is awesome and and again i just it, it makes so much sense once you hear that uh combining all those different pieces of technology and talent and building this hub and marketplace just it's awesome and it's awesome that you know you're doing it and helping lead all of that here in Kentucky. Yeah, one one thing that sticks out to me, and I kind of want to ask this general question. I, I think when you think of an office of technology commercialization, you think of, you know, obviously filing a patent or um, identifying an invention, kind of more of these beginning stage um, pieces of, of starting a business. But some of these platforms and some of, some of the other things you've said seem like it, it, it goes beyond that. It, you're more of a support system throughout a, a startup's journey. Is that true? What, what kind of ongoing support and programs can you, can you help with some of these startups coming out of the university? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think um, technology transfer was limited in its vision for a number of years where basically the, the, the end point was the license. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately that's changing over the, we see over the past five, six years, um, a lot more what I would call service wrapping of those licenses which is basically the development of programs and, and people and teams that, um, that work for those startups post-license. Um, and so one thing that we're, uh, we just launched is a, is a program that we call Co-Create uh, that plays on the word company create. Uh, uh, and basically it's a suite of services for uh, building companies. Uh, mm-hmm. And we do things like website developments, um, you know, pitch deck creation, pitch coaching, those types of things. Um, per- but perhaps more importantly than that is one tool of CoCreate is what we're calling UK Startup Network. Um, it's an online platform uh, that uh, that we've been working on building uh, uh, again uh, an online piece uh, for our 65 plus startups that are out there. Um, to actually network with each other, communicate with each other um, uh, with uh, uh, chat room style, uh, uh, bulletin board style uh, information, such as, hey, who's got this piece of equipment? Can I borrow it? Um, things like that. That's um, awesome. Hey, has anyone, has anyone pitched to an investor in Cincinnati? I'm going to be there tomorrow. Um, so questions and things like that can be shared uh, amongst our startups in this platform that we're building. 
um, as well as uh, just information and resources that will be available to them that will keep on this platform uh, in sort of a password protected um, online uh, hub. That's awesome. I, I really like that that ongoing support piece to, to make sure that these companies can succeed in the long run beyond yep. just getting a patent and, and getting started. Yep, absolutely. The way we look at it is all of those startups, we're no different than a VC in the sense that all of those startups, that's our portfolio, right? Um, and we don't succeed if they don't succeed and, and our interests are completely aligned. And so it doesn't make sense for us to just license the technology and then sit and hope they, they do well. Right? For sure. I mean, it's mutual interest there. Yep, that's right. We're, we're hitting about an hour right now. Is there anything that we haven't covered that we should kind of before we wrap up? Well, I think that, so just the last piece really um, that I want to touch on is just what's going on this in the state. And mm -hmm. so both of those projects I just described, those those part, university to university partnership projects, uh, we've involved uh, all of the public institutions in the state, uh, which to me is really, really important. Uh, and as going back to the discussion around culture, uh, culturally, we're trying to build a commercialization culture or just improve the, the commercialization culture at all of those institutions, um, because I believe in um, the overall um, commercialization ecosystem in the state, across the state, will matter to University of Kentucky uh, and its commercialization efforts. Uh, if we can raise the bar across the entire state, you'll have more industry engagement from outside the state coming to the state, um, working with not just UK, but across all those institutions that, that have very different focus areas, such as Moorhead State has a space science center, for example. Um, and then, you know, you got uh, at Northern Kentucky University, you've got an incredible um, bioinformatics, informatics college. Um, and so those those are assets of the state. Uh, and um, uh, and so we're we're uh, we're partnering right now uh, with all the institutions in the state uh, to help improve that commercialization culture, um, because I believe, um, as we have discovered here, that despite a number of those institutions not being research first or tier one research universities as University of Kentucky and University of Louisville are, um, academia is where you hire some of the best minds in certain fields, whether they are research first or teach first. And very talented faculty uh, are being employed uh, across those six other public universities in the state. Um, and when you hire PhDs in certain fields, they are some of the smartest people in that field. Um, and our idea is there's incredible um, inventorship and, uh, and ideas coming out of the, that talent across the state that's currently not being captured because those universities don't have technology transfer offices or intellectual property professionals uh, to help advise um, uh, that ideation to patents to commercialization process. Uh, so uh, we've included all of those universities in, uh, in those two projects. We're also working with the Cabinet for Economic Development right now on a third project um, that would build a um, commercialization center, a Commonwealth commercialization, uh, commercialization center in the state where uh, those types of technology transfer and intellectual property services can be provided to all of those other institutions. Uh, and I'm excited about that um, just to raise the bar of, uh, uh, for the entire state. Um, because I think as, as we do that, then the University of Kentucky's chances at commercialization improve um, because more capital and talent and other things are attracted to the state.